Good morning. Welcome to the services this morning. Last week we started a series. Brother Dusty talked to us about one of the first minor prophets that we were going to cover. And they're not minor because they didn't have a big message or a a lot to say. They're, They're just minor because the books are short. And so you've got some books like Daniel that are very lengthy and you've got a book like Obadiah that's one chapter. Um, but that was a, that Obadiah is one of the minor prophets that we'll be studying. Today, we're going to study the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah talks to us about God's unending mercy, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. A lot of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's very popular. It's in children's Bible story books. It's uh, popular in the world to tell the story to our kids. And it's popular. A lot of sermons have been made on Jonah. So because of that, I'm going to do some stuff in a, in a little bit of reverse order. I'm going to give us a lot of geography and some history about some of the cities and the things that were going on in the region, then we'll look at the story itself, and then we'll circle back and say, okay, based on everything we know, what are some lessons that we need to to learn? And I think I've got 12 or 13 things that Jonah uh, tells us very plainly, or that we can learn from that book in a very plain, in a very plain way. And excuse me, I've got some allergies, I've got some stuff going on in the throat, a little bit of runny nose, and so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sick, it's just allergies, but uh, I am um, uh, sniffling a little bit. So let's talk about Jonah himself for a minute, because Jonah's uh, the central character in this book. In 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse number 23, we have uh, basically a, a verse there that sets us in time. So we know when Jonah, who he was, when he existed, at what time he was alive. In 2 Kings, it talks, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse number 23, it talks about King Jeroboam. That's King Jeroboam the second. He was, he was king, and it talks about him being a bad king. It talks about him reigning for 41 years. And at the very end of that, it says, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hepfer. So we know we find out something about Jonah. Number one, Jonah lived in the, during the reign of King Jeroboam. Number two, he lived at Gath Hepfer, and I hope I'm saying that right. That's the only way I know how to say it. There's actually a dash between the H and the in, uh, between the small H and the big H. It just doesn't show up there in that text. Gath Hepfer. So that's where he was from. And he lived, and the story takes place uh, amongst the time when King Jeroboam II lived. Now, he reigned from 793 to 753. Forty, I guess he reigned part of the year. That's only 40 years, but he reigned 41 years, according to the Bible. Now, 15 of those years, I think that's the right, if I did the math right, he was co-regent, so he was part ruler with another man, and then for a number of years, he was the sole ruler from uh, 782 to 753. So about 800 years before before Christ comes to the earth, this is all going on. Now, historically, the kingdoms have split. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. You've had a couple of other prophets, Elisha, Elijah, that were uh, prophets to the northern kingdom. And now you've got Jonah that is uh, from the northern kingdom. So he lived in Gath. We found that out. It's a small border town. So it was on the border between the northern, uh, north, the Israel and Judah. And um, 
Jonah, the, the unique thing about Jonah was he wasn't sent to warn Israel. Jonah's going to be sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is a Gentile town, a feroce, uh, uh, they're, they're just not good people. In fact, they're the Assyrians that later come in and wipe out Israel. They're warriors, they're just not good people, and that's where he's going to be sent. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But th- these are oppressive Gentiles in this huge city. A lot of the book of Jonah is focused more on the prophet himself and his story than it is what he's really got to go tell. It's really about him. So think about the book of Job, right? The whole book of Job, 20-whatever, maybe even longer than that. All those chapters in Job is really focused on Job and his relationship with God. Jonah's kind of the same way. It's not about, here here are all the things, Israel or, or Judah, that you need to work out and get better, although there's that message in there. The book is primarily about him. He is the, he is the actor in the middle of this story. And we learn more about his reactions to the message than the, the, the message itself. The message itself is the same message as it's always been from Genesis to Revelation, and that is, as a people, we need to repent and turn away from our own sin and turn towards God. That's the message of Jonah. And that's the message of God that Jonah is sending. But we've got four chapters of how Jonah's reacting to that message himself. There's this town, the central town is Nineveh. That's the oppressive. That's where the Gentiles, <clears throat> that's where the Gentiles live. In Genesis chapter 10, it says Nimrod also went into Assyria. In Assyria, Nimrod built the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ar, Caleb, and Rosen. Rosen is a city between Nineveh and Caleb, the big city. So we recognize that early on in Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod, he, he goes into that area of Assyria and he builds this, uh, this city of Nineveh. And then in Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, the very story we're talking about, it says he obeyed the Lord. So later in the story, he obeys the Lord. He goes to Nineveh. It's a very large city. A person had to walk for three days to travel through it. So Nineveh was huge. At the time of the, the story, 120,000 people lived in Nineveh. We find that out in the very last verse of chapter 4 of the story of Jonah. It says that there was a lot of people there, 120,000 people. So when we think about a three days journey to walk across it, they walked, they walked about 20 miles, according to everybody that I taught, listened to, read, historians. It's about 20 miles. So a three day journey would be 60 miles. That's how wide this city is, 60 miles. In perspective, Mesquite, Texas at I-35, or 635 and I-30, you go from there, you go through downtown Dallas, you go through the mid-cities of Arlington and Grand Prairie, you go through Fort Worth, and you get on the outer skirts of Fort Worth at White Settlement at I-30 and 820 is 62 miles. So that's 62 miles. This city of Nineveh, one city was that big, and that's five or six cities here in the DFW Metroplex. So big, big, big city, lots of people. Lots of people, lots of animals, and that's what the last verse says of of, uh, Jonah chapter 4. Um, so I, yeah, I told you that. It's on the banks of the Tigris River, so a lot of trade, a very powerful city. It controlled the trade up and down the Tigris River. It was the uh, capital and largest city of Neo-Assyrian Empire, and it was the largest city in the world until about 612 B.C. So some 100 and something years, 150 years after this story, it had grown to become the largest city um, in the world, known world at the time. 
In 612 B.C. it is sacked. It, it's it's uh, ravished. And it never recovers. In fact, today the city of Nineveh lies in ruins across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul, um, which is in Iran. But it is, um, that's an artist's rendering of the, uh, the city of Nineveh. Very, very beautiful. Don't know the accuracy of it. But I thought it would maybe give us some uh, breadth and width and scope of this, this city of Nineveh. Today in the, in the area, you've got Mosul, which is the capital across the Tigris River, is the, the ruins of Nineveh, which are primarily an architectural, ar- archaeological digging area, trying to uncover archaeological findings. But this whole, what I would call a state in Iran, is called the Nineveh governor, after the ancient city of Nineveh today. That is what it's called. And uh, about two and a half million people um, live in this area. The capital is the capital of Missoula, across the Tigris River from where Nineveh stood. Joppa is mentioned in the story. Now, we're probably familiar with Joppa. Joppa's in the New Testament in a lot of different places. So not only is Joppa mentioned here, so when he leaves, when, he, when the Lord tells him, we'll go through the story in a minute, but when the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh, Jonah goes, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. And so he leaves Gathepher, he goes down to the port city of Joppa, he pays some men, gets on a boat, and heads out across the ocean, the Mediterranean Ocean. Where he got on the boat was Joppa. Now Joppa was famous for having been the place that goods were brought in to build the temple. So Solomon brought in goods into the port of Joppa when he built the temple, and it tells us that in Second Chronicles chapter 2. Later, after the temple was restored, goods were brought back in through that same port in Ezra chapter 3. So a lot of trade came in and out of that port. Um, very, uh, very significant to trade, not so easily defended. It was tore down and rebuilt and tore down and rebuilt and tore down and rebuilt because it was so valuable to trade but so very difficult to defend. And that's in here. Tabitha, Dorcas, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9, that's where Peter goes and he raises her from the dead. That's there in Joppa. In Joppa is also where Peter hears the message about the Gentiles needing to become part of the kingdom and he later goes to Cornelius' house and talks to Cornelius about the vision that he'd had there in Joppa and the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom. And then obviously that's where uh, Jonah boards the ship. And um, as I said, few cities have been torn down and rebuilt more than Joppa. Oh, it's, and it's the modern-day city of Jaffa with two Fs and an A in there instead of Joppa. So let's talk about the story of Jonah. Let's kind of step through that story. This is going to be a summary. Again, it's four chapters. I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon. It's a very, it's a very easy read um, and a very interesting read. This is a, a map of what was going on at that particular time. You've got Gath-Hepfer here. That's where Jonah lived. That's where he's given the orders. And so he's given his orders in chapter 1 by the Lord. He said, go to Nineveh. Now Nineveh is about 660 miles um, in, in, uh, as the crow flies. I don't know exactly what the path would be to get there. But again, if we're traveling 20 miles a day, this is a big undertaking. It's going to take a month to get from where he's at traveling uh, to, to Nineveh. But he's given the orders to, <clears throat> to go to Nineveh some 660 miles away. But that's not what he does. He goes down to Joppa, 
and goes on a flight some 2,500 miles. He's going to get on a boat. He's going to fly. He's going to sail through the Mediterranean to what was the farthest known place in the world at the time, Tarshish. That's according to the historians that were that I read about this story. So some 2,500 miles all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to a, a, a port in Spain called Tarshish. Now that's not the same place that Paul's from. That that's over here in uh, Turkey. Um, that's Tarsus, not Tarshish. So he gets on the boat and he's headed out across the, um, the, the this, this ocean, running away from God on the flight. And what happens is God sends a storm. And so he causes the winds to come up and the storm to come up and this boat's being tossed to and fro and the men are trying to get to shore so it doesn't break up on the rocks or, or fall apart. And they're rowing hard and they're trying to get to shore and they can't, they can't make any headway. And they're scared. And so they do what anyone would do. They cast lots. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But they cast lots. They throw dice. They throw bones. They throw something. And the lots, the lots that they cast say the, your problem. And they cast lots on every person on the boat. So we roll the dice and say, is Kent the problem with this storm? And they go, no, it's not Kent. They roll some more. And they say, that's not Eddie. And finally they roll and they find out, man, the problem is this guy that's down in the hole that's book passage named Jonah. He's the problem. And so they rush down there, get Jonah, and they say, Hey, man, what have you done? What God have you made mad? And he's like, Well, you know, if I'm going to be honest, the, the God, the one and only God I've made mad. He told me to go to Nineveh. I'm going the opposite direction. Throw me overboard. Everything will be fine. And they're like, Man, we don't want to have your death on our hands. So they try to get to shore. They're continuing to row. And finally, they're not making any headway. And they say, they say a little prayer, don't, you know, don't forgive us for doing this. And they throw Jonah over into the ocean, and poof, the storm's over. And they go, truly, this is the God. Jonah had told them it was the God of the earth and the sea, and, and they goes, truly, this is the God. But Jonah's got a problem. He's in the ocean. And the Lord causes a big, it, it says a big fish. The Hebrew term there is a sea creature. In the New Testament in Matthew, it's defined as a whale. I don't know. One's a fish. One's a mammal. I'm not an expert. But it's a big sea creature capable of, of having a person inside of them. Whatever uh, you want to believe there. I probably will call it a whale just because that's what I think a big fish looks like today. <laughs> but... Uh, it could have been a big fish because a whale is a mammal according to scientists and a fish is a fish. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a scientist. The big fish or the whale swallows up Jonah and Jonah's in the belly for three days. In chapter 2, so that's kind of the end of chapter 1. In chapter 2, Jonah goes and he, the whole chapter is about his prayer to the Lord. His prayer to God is saying, hey, I recognize that you're the God. I recognize you created everything. I recognize that uh, it's only through you that salvation happens. When he, Right after he says that, it says the big fish spit him out on dry land. In the middle there, he talks about being in the belly of the whale is like being in hell. H-E-L-L, the S-H-E-O-L version of hell. The, where place people get punished, where there's an absence of righteousness hell. Jonah believed in hell, fire. He believed in the place of punishment. It tells us there in chapter 2. 
But at the end of chapter 2, he, um, the, the Lord hears his prayer and he spits Jonah out on dry land. Now, I don't know where it spit Jonah out on dry land. If, if the, it could have been in Egypt. It could have been, it could have been anywhere. They could have been well into the, into the trip to Tarshish before the storm came up. He could have been dropped off in Africa and had, you know, walked thousands of miles. The fish could have dropped him off up here where it was closer to Nineveh. The fish could have been capable of swimming in both seawater and um, um, fresh water and sailed up the river of, of, of uh, Tigris and spit him out at the doors of Nineveh under some other miracle. I don't know. I don't know where he was spit out. But he was spit out on dry land. And then the Lord comes to him again in chapter 3 and he says, we're going to Nineveh. <laughs> and he goes this time. He gets to Nineveh and it says he took, he took, he made a day's journey into Nineveh. So 60 miles wide, he went in about 20 miles, if that's the measurement. And, and, that, and, the, and at that point, he started preaching. And he started telling these people, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed in 41 days. Or 40 days, 41 years, 40 days, I think. <laughs> if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And the people start listening. And they start repenting. And the king hears about it. And the king puts on special clothes. And he puts on special coverings over the animals. And the whole town starts to repent. And it, and it says that the whole town repented at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 4, we find... Jonah beside himself because they had repented. Again, they were the enemy. They were Gentiles. They were oppressive. I don't know all the reasons that he didn't want them to repent, but it was clear Jonah was upset that they had, he was mad that God wasn't going to destroy. He said, that's the whole reason I didn't want to come because I knew if I came over here and these guys repented, you'd change your mind and you wouldn't kill them. Well, yeah. That's what repent. That's the whole purpose. So while he's stewing, God causes this vine to grow up around him and to provide him shade. And in the, he's in the middle of the desert, but the shade providing some luxury, some cool. And then he causes a worm to come over and start eating the vine, and the vine wilts, and Jonah gets mad again. He's like, why did you kill this vine? And so... God brings up this question to Jonah, and I think this is a reflective question that would be good for all of us. God says, do you think it's right for you to get angry? And so life doesn't always go our way. Life throws us a lot of left turns, right turns, makes us reverse, go all different directions. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Things we can't explain happen. People get in the car accidents. People die early. People die late. People get sick. People get cancer. Do we have the right to be angry about those things? That's the question here of Jonah because Jonah had this quandary. Jonah, Jonah wasn't in control of any of this. And so think about... If you lay alongside what happened to the people of Nineveh and what happened to the plant. So God creates man. They're bad there at the city of Nineveh, but they repent. They're, they, they, they're, they're in good shape. Creates man. They're in good shape. He, he doesn't destroy them. Now think about the plant. God creates the plant. It's doing good. And he destroys it. He says, Nineveh, he says what are you mad at, Jonah? 
when they were good and I didn't destroy them, you got mad. When they were good and I destroyed them, you got mad. In either either case, you got mad. So what, what right do you have to be angry? And so I think for us, that's a probably the number one lesson that I would learn from Jonah. We've got some more later. But God is in control. He is sovereign. It's His world. He created it. He's the God of it. And we don't have any right to get angry when things don't go our way. Now, I'm sure Brother Matt will um, want to talk sometime about shadows from the, from the book of Jonah. So the book of Jonah is just full of shadows, and I'm going to throw a few up on the screen. I'm not going to go into any detail. But a shadow is something that happened before in the Old Testament. It's a type in any time. So it's, a, it's something that happened that is laid alongside something that's going to happen in the New Testament or mirror it. And so when we think of some of these shadows, the first thing, the first thing is it says that Jonah was a sign. Jesus was also a sign. Jonah was assigned to the Nineveh. Jesus was assigned to the whole world. The conditions, the people of Nineveh were evil and adulterous. It tells us that in chapter 1. And the people of the world were evil and adulterous when Jesus came. The road, Jonah's road to Nineveh was difficult. Jesus' road was unbearable. The duration, they both spent three days. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth. The miracle. Jonah survived three days inside the whale, was spit out on dry land, and Jesus arose from the belly of the earth and defeated death. The message, repent or be destroyed. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The result, Gentiles repented and Jonah, the one Jew, didn't really get it. In the New Testament, Gentiles repent and there's a lot of Jews that don't really get it. So a lot of things, a lot of parallels, that would be another word for shadows. Things that happened in the, the story of Jonah that laid alongside the same things that happened to Jesus. Three days and three nights. Lots of shadows. And there's more. But we're not going to talk about all of them. Maybe some applications this afternoon. There will be some others that we can talk about. So what are our lessons learned? As we... Um, <clears throat> head towards the conclusion, the book of Jonah. What are our lessons learned? Well, the first one, I think, is that God is control. We talked about that. He is sovereign in the things that go on in this world. Um, he rises, he brings governments up. He takes governments down. He's in control. In this story, he controlled the weather. He controlled the great sea creature. He controlled the plant. He controlled the worm. He ultimately controlled Jonah to do what he needed to get done in order to better his kingdom or better his message or better his plan for the um, for the coming of his son. <coughs> we talked about God's ways are not our ways. It specifically tells us that in the Bible. God's ways are not our ways. And so Jonah not wanting to go preach to Nineveh, that wasn't God that was God's way. Jonah's way was to freak out and try to go to Tarshish. That wasn't, that wasn't uh, and that didn't happen. He ultimately has to turn around and go back and do what God wanted him to do because that's the only way it works. God loves all people. He's no respecter of persons and we shouldn't be either. So, 
the Ninevites were Gentiles. It, it, it does not matter what race, color, creed, how much money we've got. It doesn't matter to God. We are a soul, and he loves us. Every one of us, white, black, it doesn't matter, green, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what our race is. It doesn't matter what our religion is. He wants us to come to his religion. He wants us to come to him and to do it the way he wants it done. But it doesn't matter how, how rich we are. All of us are accountable. So back in those days, you might say, well, only the Israelites were accountable to God, right? Because they were his chosen people. But in this very instance, he takes a Jewish prophet and sends him to the Gentiles. So uh, all people were accountable and always have been. People can change, can repent. I don't know how many times I've heard this said, people can't change. A leopard can't change its spots. I am confident that is wrong. In fact, the Bible tells us that he gives this long list of sins and he says, such were some of you before you found Christ. And I think every one of us are capable of change. If you go get a bad doctor's report and it says, if you don't lose 50 pounds in a month, you're going to die. We ain't eating nothing for a month. Proper motivation will change us. If, if we had unequivocal proof that the Lord was coming back next Sunday, Ain't a one of us be worried about a 401k. We wouldn't be tracking the stock market. We wouldn't be going to work. We don't care what our boss thinks of us. We probably read the Bible more in a week than we have in our whole life. We're talking to people that we love that we want to go to heaven because there's only a week left. Everything changes. Now, I know that's not fair, but that's an over-exaggeration. We don't know that, so we've got to keep up with life. But what is important? We can change. We can repent. We can turn away. We can do what we need to do to serve the Lord. We talked about this earlier, so I'll skip over that. <coughs> Covenantial snobbery. I think my way is the only way, and so I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. My grandmother told me of a, of a funeral we called her Mimi that she went to and there was some Church of Christ people there and the Church of Christ people said too bad that lady's going to hell because she wasn't Church of Christ. That's covenantal snobbery. That's thinking you're something you're not. That's being very judgmental. We don't have that right. All we have the right to do is present the Bible, the truth, and let people come to that. So he didn't have the right to say, hey, we're Jews, I'm not going to the Gentiles. God has no problem moving you out of your comfort zone. We'll talk about that. That's kind of the last question that I want us to ponder. God has no problem moving you out of your comfort zone. There are things he's going to ask you to do through his word that aren't going to be comfortable. They're not going to be the way you're wired. They're not going to be the way you think. They're not going to be who you are. I'm an introvert preaching the gospel this morning. That's, I'm not, that's not comfortable for me. I am not comfortable in front of people. I work hard at it. 
Brother Matt goes, why do you come to church? And somebody checked the alarm this morning. I was here about 7.15. Why do you come to church and give your lesson a couple of times before you stand in front of the audience? Because I'm an introvert. I'm uncomfortable up here. I want to practice this and at least make it to the point that you get something out of it. That's what I want. It's not about me. I'm not up here to look good for Yancey. I'm up here so that something on the board or on the screen or something I say touches the heart and, and causes you to do something different. He will get you out of your comfort zone. We already talked about this. You can't run away from him. You can't. <clears throat> can't be done. Disobedience will create turmoil in your life. Now, I'm not saying that if you go do something wrong, God's going to come down and punish you. Because we all know he is going to come down and he is going to punish wrong, but he doesn't do it on a singular item basis. He's going to do that at the end. What I am saying is similar to last week when we talked about sowing and reaping. If you sow bad seed, you're going to reap bad seed. And you're going to have consequences on this earth that are going to put your life in turmoil. You sow one bad seed and you reap an abundance, right? You sow one seed of corn, you get a head of corn. You get ten heads of corn. Your, your uh, bad seed will reproduce and it will multiply and it will cause turmoil in your life. All God wants is for us to acknowledge our sin, accept his way, repent, and act on, uh, act on his directions. And we need to learn to see the big picture and have a softer heart. So when uh, Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh, he wasn't seeing the big picture. He wasn't seeing that this God that, that was the God of Israel was going to be the God of everybody. And that there was a bigger picture other than just the children of Israel. And there's a bigger picture today for all of us, right? God's power changes hearts and minds. Think about the boat crew. They didn't know who God was when they started out on that boat. By the time that storm had been calmed, they were confident that Jonah's God was the God. So Jonah had a quandary as we wrap up this morning. And I would suggest that we have a, a, a quandary, quandary too. Jonah could either do what God said and go to Nineveh, or Jonah could run and, and try to run away and, and, and catch a boat and go to Tarshish. So my question this morning for you is, what is the Lord asking you to do that makes you want to book a boat ride? Makes you want to buy a ticket and go the other way? What is it? So if we're reading the Bible and we're, we're, we're reading it, there, there's, there's things in there that are, that are tough things to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'm not an evangelist. I don't, there's all these things. What is it the thing that God's asking us to get out of our comfort zone and do that maybe we're booking a ticket on the boat headed the other direction? Hopefully that's been beneficial this morning. That's the story of Jonah as I understand it. And some applications to that or some things we can learn from that. <clears throat> I appreciate your kind attention. I appreciate um, the, uh, the story of Jonah. I appreciate um, God giving us that story to help us understand who is really in control. You know, we worry about the political landscape. Brother Eddie prayed a prayer that said, hey, go vote. He didn't tell you which way to vote, but he said, go vote. Be a part of the democracy of this country and in, and in the decision-making that's going on. 
And it, it doesn't matter whether we're Democrat or Republican. All that matters is to know that God is in control. He's in control of this government, and it will last not one jot or one tittle longer than he wants it to. So some people say, well, America's going to, it's, it's decaying, it's going to go away. If it does, it's because that's his will. And he's got something different planned for this world. If it doesn't and it lasts another 2,000 years, that's because it's God's plan. He controls the governments. He controls when he's going to come back. As Brother Dusty often prays at the end of his prayer, come back soon, Lord. Some of us might have to take a big before we say amen to that. Because we're like, well, I've got a pretty good week planned. <laughs> really don't want the Lord coming back this afternoon. Um, but I, I think that um, that's the right attitude to have. And if you have that attitude, then the things you're doing every day and every week will be different than um, having the attitude of, man, I hope he doesn't come back because I've got a lot of wild oats to sow so I can pray for a crop failure. Brother Truman used to say. One of my favorite sayings. If the, if the church can help you, uh, have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing the song.